Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, December 11th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about the seventh episode of Disney Plus's The Mandalorian Season 2, entitled The Believer. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor, Fred Oman. Hey, that's me. And our special guest from the Star Wars Insider, StarWars.com, Full of Sith Podcast, and a little site called SlashFilm.com. Brian Young. Thank you for putting up with me for another week. <laughs> you know, Brian, we'll, we'll have you for at least uh, next week, too. Okay. okay. Maybe. 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 <laughs> maybe you know, right. hopefully there's some stuff in the future we could talk about, too. Yeah. I don't I know. Think, I, feel uh, like this, I, think this, I think the Star Wars train is run out of steam, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll t- talk about that later in the speculation section. By the way, I'm recording from a different location this week, so my sound might sound a little different. Um, okay, let's start things off. It sounds tropical. Yeah, a little bit tropical. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, uh, yeah, I'm on Scarif, right? And, oh, uh, fancy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let's start things off with feedback from last week's episode. Um, some bits and pieces that we learned since the recording last week. One of those bits is we learned that Robert Rodriguez, who is the director, was actually a last-minute replacement 
We learned that in an interview that he did with, I think, I don't know, where, oh, SFX. He told SFX that uh, he got the call and came in as a last-minute uh, replacement. We don't know who he was replacing. Do you, do you guys have any any theories? We talked about this uh, privately before, and I, I had suggested the possibility of maybe Kevin Smith, since the episode was shot by Dave Klein, who worked with him on uh, almost all of his movies. Um, but then we all agreed that it probably wouldn't make sense for it to be Kevin Smith and not have him be talking endlessly about missing out on this opportunity now that the episode is out there because Kevin Smith loves to talk about anything and everything involving him and anything he <laughs> either is, isn't, or almost worked on. Also yeah, Star Wars. <laughs> That's yeah, true. it's like I, he was invited to the set of a bunch of the movies and specifically told and signed NDA agreements not to talk about it. And he couldn't stop himself from talking about it then. So what's the chances that he would, I mean, maybe this one has like a, there is a, a possible future gig involved of him directing an episode of Mandalorian. So maybe that would stop him, but I don't think so. But I like that theory because his DP or his previous DP, uh, Dave Klein was the DP for that episode. But uh, Rodriguez, too, um, is the sort of filmmaker who, even if he was a last minute replacement, feels like the sort who would bring what crew he wanted. And uh, there's every chance he wanted to work with this DP. Otherwise, he'd have just done it himself. Well, also, yeah. one, one thing that's interesting, too, though, is like, I, one thing that might help us maybe make a better guess if we have more time to actually think about it or really dig into it is that the script that they gave Rodriguez, he said, was only 19 pages long. And for an episode that ran 32, 32 minutes, roughly, uh, a little less when you consider credits, uh, he had to fill out a lot of that episode with action because um, in screenwriter terms, you, you, one page usually equals a minute of screen time. Uh, but even for Robert Rodriguez, he's very economical with those pages. And so it would have probably be, probably been less than 19 minutes total. So he added a lot with the um, action sequences throughout the episode. So presumably it would have had to have been a director that Favreau also would have trusted to beef up the episode with action. Well, and it would also imply that his last minute replacement probably happened in the pre-production process. Also, not just like, Hey, we forgot that we don't have a director. We need you to come out and start shooting. Uh, (laughs) He probably had some time to work on it for a while. And that, and that maybe it could have been somebody who, um, if it was a last minute replacement, somebody dropping out because they got a bigger or better project. And uh, my, which leads me to wonder if it's somebody who is working on another Star Wars thing. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Mm. Um, somebody who's working on a different Star Wars thing who had to drop out of their episode of The Mandalorian to go do something else. Um, and, you know, we're conspicuously missing Taika Waititi from from this season so far. And who knows if he's going to be back for, for the finale because we don't know about that. But, you know, maybe this was Taika's episode and he he left to go work on something else and Thor. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's possible. Also, um, we like you said, we, we don't know what last minute means in film production process. That could literally mean the day before or it could mean, you know, months and months before in pre-production just like far into the pre-production part. You know what I mean? Like, so we don't know is basically probably, probably not the day before because like Robert Rodriguez yeah. is, a, is a very efficient filmmaker, but I don't think he's efficient enough to figure out those action sequences <laughs> in a day. 
hey, you never know, Brad. You never know. <laughs> and by the way, that information about the – when Rodriguez was talking about the script length and stuff, that comes from Collider.com. They had an interview with Rodriguez talking about his new projects. So I just want to mention that. Um, another thing a lot of people have been talking about is uh, we mentioned last week the HasLab project for the Razorcrest. They, they're funding – crowdfunding a huge Razorcrest project. Uh, a model for the action figures. What is it like the 3.5 inch? I think may it rest in peace. Yeah. It's the, yeah, the 3.75 inch vintage collection. Yeah. And um, a lot of people have been theorizing because part of that campaign, there is a part of the razor crest that actually has like an escape pod where you can actually have like one person in this escape pod, like eject out the top of the razor crest. And they thought that was going to come into play this season at some point because, you know, it's designed into this toy. But nope, not happening. So <laughs> just wanted to bring that up. So they designed that just for funsies, just for the toy, I guess. Yeah. What else do I have on this list for us today? We um, Oh, the Mandalorian uh, chain code translation. I, I brought this up to you guys in our, our special secret chat that we have. Um, someone actually translated when Boba Fett shows his chain code, they actually translated it and it um, had a bunch of different people in that line. Fett, Boba, Father Fett, Mentor, Jast, uh, Concord Dawn, The Year, Took Into, Foundling. I don't know. There's a little, there's some like gibberish there. But Brian, is there anything in that cipher, in in, in, in that uh, that breakdown there that we should that should be interesting. Yeah, Jaster Mareel was the original name of Boba Fett back in the Legends days. And uh, Concord Dawn is a Mandalorian planet that, um, you know, we've we've seen and heard about in Star Wars previously on Rebels. And uh, it it's it's got some some cool um, Easter eggs in there. But uh, over the week, I've gotten some pushback by insisting that this episode does not confirm that Boba's a Mando. And they used the fact that he has a chain code as part of that. And uh, I would like to remind everybody to go back to the first episode where uh, Grogu has a chain code. And they have that. And so I think that's just a thing people who are involved in the guild or wanted or whatever might have. Um, regardless. So you think that like those translations, this was just like a bunch of fun Easter eggs that was thrown in there and the visual effects. No, I think I think what it is is that it's still trying to tell the story that that armor is Django's, and this is Boba still proving that that armor is his, um, and that he got it from his father, and it sort of it tells that that story, whether that story's a hundred percent accurate or not that that Django was a foundling and received the armor from the Mandalorians and Concord Dawn. Um, so that all checks out. I think, I think Django definitely interacted with the, the Mandalorians and got the armor from them. And now it's Boba's hmm. still don't think he's okay. a Mando, but there we go. <laughs> You're going to die on that rock. Okay. Uh, yeah. let's, let's, let's jump into uh, chapter 15 um, let's give our brief reactions. This one's directed by Rick Famuyiwa, I think is how you pronounce his last name, Famuyiwa. And um, it's also written by him. And this is the penultimate episode. It's running 39 minutes. 
Uh, you know, let's start things off. Brad, what did you think? What are your brief reaction? Um, I thought this episode was fine. Um, you know, even though it, usually you expect a little bit more to happen in the episode just before uh, the f- season finale, as far as setting threads up, you know, to include in some kind of big face off. And there's definitely uh, that here, but it feels like such a minor thing and amounts to, you know, really what is a pit stop episode again. Uh, essentially a, a side adventure before the finale. And I wasn't necessarily upset about it, especially because I think Bill Burr is particularly good in this episode. Uh, and they really added some interesting definition to uh, his character and it allowed it to also show, uh, you know, Mando that maybe not everyone is, uh, you know, who they're cracked up to be as far as their place in the galaxy. Um, even if they appear to be nothing more than, you know, criminals trying to make their way across the galaxy. And so it's, um, I think it had some really good things in it. It did feel <clears throat> similar to how the last episode kind of felt because as much as I enjoyed the last episode, there was a part of it that felt cheaper to me than a lot of what we've seen this season. And I kind of felt the same way with this episode too. Both of these episodes felt more like TV series episodes than I think the, the cinematic quality that we've seen before. Um, and so th- there was part of that that kind of just... I don't know, bugged me a little bit, but, uh, you know, there were, there were good scenes here, especially when it came to, um, you know, the confrontation that came with the, uh, Imperial officer later, it took, it took a, a route that I wasn't necessarily expecting. Um, so, so yeah, I think it was, it was a fine episode. Definitely not one of my favorites of the season though. Yeah. I think maybe not, uh, I'm, I'm not crediting Rick with this. It's probably more of credit of Favreau. I would, I would assume like we've talked in the past of how the, this, season and even some of the first season feels like a video game it's like you know now you got to go on this quest to get the thing that you need to do in the next episode to do the thing that like it really feels like favreau in in the structure of the season has been more heavily inspired by video games than he has movies is that fair to say what do do you guys think i mean i don't know in some ways Yes, I think that's more just like a the nature of sci-fi that, than anything. If anything, I feel like it it owes more because of the adventure of the week scenario to to western shows. You know, of there, there's, yeah. there's always a new a new bounty and someone to track down and and whatnot. Yeah, I think I think that. Um, also, I think that that I mean to be honest, I think Favreau's elevating that a little bit. Right. Like every instance of the Mandalorian going out on an adventure or a mission this season has put him in contact with someone that makes him question some aspect of himself, some aspect of his code, some aspect of his definition of what it means to be a Mandalorian. So you have um, Cobb Vanth in the first episode is someone who he respects and and. and and finds honorable in the Mandalorian armor, but still insists on taking it from him because he's not a Mandalorian and has no claim over the armor. Um, he runs into, uh, you know, he runs into the uh, Death Watch. He runs into Bo-Katan. And here are Mandalorians who he doesn't feel um, live up to his definition of Mandalorian, but Bo-Katan was the Mandalore. And then he runs into Boba Fett, who is, well, he runs into Ahsoka first, who is, who is Mandalorian adjacent, right? Like Ahsoka, uh, worked to do as much for the, um, 
Ahsoka worked to do as much for the um, Mandalorians as anyone, especially in the liberation of Mandalore. And, uh, you know, then he comes to Boba Fett, who's another person in the in the the Jango Fett armor that may or may not be a Mandalorian and has a different code altogether. And so uh, with Bill Burr's character, with Migs Mayfeld here, he's exposed to a different worldview that makes makes it apparent that everything is much more complicated than he realized. Yeah. And I think that that's um, part and parcel of like Favreau sort of elevating that adventure of the week where every adventure provides something for um, for the Mandalorian to like chew on as far as his personal code. Yeah. Well, in screenwriting, they call that a mirror where you're you're having the main character look at someone who's either similar or very different it challenges his beliefs and i i think yeah this season they're really doing that well um uh what did you think of this episode Brian um you know with this episode i really i i enjoyed it i think it, it gave us something like a nuance that uh we weren't expecting necessarily um especially because i think there was there was a couple of really great moments that turned things on their head um in a way that i wasn't expecting right like that cheer that we want to give as an audience to um the empire arriving to destroy these locals right <laughs> like that's a really interesting nuanced take that I, I wasn't expecting, right? Like, cause you have like the same sort of feeling like when Han Solo shows up to, uh, you know, help Luke destroy the Death Star where it's like, yes, we got him. And when those TIE fighters show up, you get that same feeling. And it's like, wait a second, this is the empire. That's, that's <laughs> wrong. I shouldn't feel this way. And so I think it adds a lot of really interesting complications and nuance to the universe that it's been missing. And then the ending was just badass, right? Like it was just yeah. cool. It's also interesting that Rick in the first season did the prison heist. And this is kind of like a, um, it's a heist for information, right? So, uh, I don't know. I, I like this episode. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of Bill Burr's character in Mayfield in the first season, but I liked what he did in this episode. It, I feel like he uh, was more empathetic. He was funny. Um, I almost really hope that maybe he shows up in that New Republic show that we'll be talking about later. Um, maybe, maybe he could be the more comic relief in that. Um, okay, let, let's... Uh, Let's jump in to our beat-by-beat beat dissection of this episode. Um, there is – this starts off with uh, – we see this TIE Fighter junkyard, which is actually interesting. I'm not sure if you guys place this connection, but in the art of The Force Awakens, there's this great concept art that when they were exploring different planets for the Ray character to grow up on, one of them was like this – tie fighter junkyard like the remnants of of the wars and it looked very much like this and it's funny how they keep on kind of digging into some of the unused concept art of the star wars sequel series like they obviously use the how the tie fighters take off from i think the same book maybe it was last jedi it was it was one of those two uh productions 
Um, but it, it, I don't know. I, I love how, you know, ideas don't die in Star Wars. They just come back again. <laughs> um, so we see a droid who walks over to Bill Burr's character, Mayfield, and tells him to salute the marshal. Cara Dune enters to release him. And uh, let's talk about this prison droid for a second, actually. This prison droid has, like, that New Republic logo on him, but he seems kind of nasty to me. He has, like, this bully stick that, like, shocks, and he doesn't seem – I don't know. I, I guess when I was thinking of the New Republic from the original trilogy, I thought they were, like, an allegory for the, like, Democratic Party, and they're, like, more um, human and willing to, like – I don't know, like, Brian, am I wrong here that, like, it seems, like, like, this seems very harsh, like, to have, like, a prison guard of, like, this, I mean, I guess, I get it, you're dealing with some nasty criminals here, but, like. Yeah, I mean, like, this guy murdered a New Republic officer, um, and it's not like he's straight up, like, you know, Javert, like, he lets him go just fine, but, um, I don't know, I, 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 I think that maybe there was a miss in how they could have commented on prisons, and yeah. how that sort of stuff works. But this was very much just sort of a, a cartoon chain gang, almost like Lex Luthor in one of the later Superman films. <laughs> For sure. Okay. So Mayfield wants to know why, where he's going. And then he sees Boba Fett and he's like, Oh, uh, not, not the one that I don't want to see or whatever he says. And then Mando comes out, by the way, it's Fett's costume. Like, has it been repainted here? Yeah, I was gonna. Say, I was gonna say it looks like he had some time to give it a little bit of a paint job because it's definitely been touched up. It has more of a, a matte paint scheme than it being um, more worn and scratched. There are still some uh, some wear and tear on it, but it, it looks a little bit more artificial than. And I think it looks cooler when it was more damaged um, because it. Yeah, it, it it almost looks like it's made of a cheaper material than it was before with the paint job that it has filled in the dent in his hel- helmet too. Like, I mean, there's still a trace of the dent, but yeah, filled it in pretty good. I'm not sure how I feel. Yeah, about it, to be honest. Me, yeah. I'm not sure either. It reminds me when I see a car on the street and it's been like spray painted matte black or something like you can tell that it didn't come from the factory that way. It looks like it was like home repaired. I don't know. It, <clears throat> I kind of like the idea of it. I'm not sure. It looks better from farther away. I will say that. Yeah. And maybe it's just him doing the best with what he has at this point, you know, cause I mean, he, he had time to do that. You know, maybe, maybe he has some kind of mechanism that, that paints his armor or I don't know if he took the time to like do it himself and like just, just set painting his armor, which is a funny thing to think about. <laughs> um, but yeah. And then all, it's also weird too, that now that Boba Fett is back, he's just like, Casually taking off his helmet, uh, you know, to have conversations with people. <laughs> yeah, it is strange. Um, okay, so they named Mayfield because he knows the Imperial clearances and protocols. And then we get the chapter titled The Believer, which, you know what? Usually I talk about it right now. We, we ask the question, you know, who is the believer? But let's let's get to that at the end of, end of the episode or later in the episode. Um, there's this uh, string version of the Mando theme in the sequence, which I think is probably one of my favorite versions of the Mando theme. Um, I, I really loved it here. And uh, I also love seeing the Slave One rotate around from the inside of the ship. Yeah. It, how cool was that? Yeah, it was cool to see how the 
the mechanics of the the slave one switching its orientation in order to fly upright affects the people inside the ship. So it's, there's basically just a mechanism that allows the seating area to turn with the ship so that there's n- no one is like leaning a weird way when the ship is flying or landing or anything. Have we Which ever is, seen it from, from that angle? We ha- um, we've seen, this is definitely some new looks at the ship, but if you remember in Attack of the Clones, when Boba is trying to get a better look at the fight, he is sort of laying there on his back in his chair and sort of has to climb up over the console to look and see what's going on with what's going on as though it hasn't been engaged yet. Um, so I think they've definitely done some streamlining to make the the Slave 1 actually uh, a flyable ship that you can use on screen. Because if you look at the interior is much larger than the exterior. And uh, it doesn't actually work. But I think that the stuff that they're showing us um, makes it work well enough so that nobody has to question that. They, they, yeah, yeah, they basically explained it better than they did as... Um the the turrets on the Millennium Falcon and how those compartments work. <laughs> no, for sure. Okay, so they want Mayfield to help get the coordinates for Moff Gideon's cruiser, and in return, they're not going to set him free. They're going to give him, quote-unquote, a better view. Um, but Mayfield's willing to work with that. Um, you know, he'll take whatever he can get. And uh, he says that he needs to get to Morak, a secret Imperial mining hub where there might be a terminal where he can get the coordinates. Um, Brian, have we ever heard of Morak before? Um, No, and I did some digging to try to find out about it, and the closest thing I could imagine that it is is a reference to Star Trek. There's a Klingon on Voyager who was named Morak with the same spelling, but this is its first appearance in Star Wars. Not to be confused with... I think Rick has mentioned... That he's a star. He was a Star Trek fan, so I think that might make sense. Not to be confused. Not to be confused with Morag, which is a planet from Guardians of the Galaxy. Ah, yeah. Um, okay, so Morag is a refinery that deals in Rhydonium, which is a highly explosive and very volatile. Uh, <laughs> I can't talk today. Volatile. Uh, volatile. Yes. Um, Brian, I think we've heard of this substance in rebels before so rhydonium is something we've been seeing a lot um, and have seen a lot in clone wars and rebels um i one of the first instances we saw it was in the d squad episodes where colonel meber gascon is working with d squad and they come out in contact with the republic commando and it's sort of a reference to those republic commando games where you've always got that barrel of explosives around a huge group of enemies that you can hit to knock all those enemies down yeah. And Rhydonium is, has sort of been used like that in Clone Wars and Rebels. And um, uh, it's it's been around for a while and it's exactly that. It's just it's that that cartoon video game explosive. Yeah. But here it's being used as an obstacle where. Yeah. OK, we'll get that. Um, the, the base is being run by some ex-Imperials, uh, Fennec, Dune. That they all—they're all in the registry, so they're—they can't get scanned there, and so Mayfield's going to have to go alone. But Mando volunteers to go with them, and Mayfield basically is like, you know, there's no way they're going to let you in wearing that—that that helmet. And Mando says he'll do it without showing his face. Uh, we find out how uh, there's some stormtroopers. Are they? They look like short troopers, like black short troopers. 
what so, do you guys think? So these are hover tank troopers. We saw them in Rogue One. Okay. Um, so they're driving a 10-wheel vehicle, which I think they call a juggernaut. Is it, Does it have another name in this galaxy? Um, I think it's a little bit like... Uh, it's a little bit like the same as... Uh, um, the one that Jin Erso is is found on in Rogue One. There was a lot of Rogue One in this episode, actually, uh, including yeah. Shore Troopers, because there are there are Shore Troopers. Um, but I think it's just sort of a converted one of those, which are actually from Clone Wars uh, as well. Oh, okay. Um, so they hijacked the vehicle, and now Mando is in disguise as one of those uh, troopers. And I mean. Is there anything more classic in Star Wars than, you know, the good guys having to go in disguise as Imperial, you know, officers or stormtroopers to get into a Imperial base? I mean, I feel like that's Star Wars, right? Yeah. Um, and this, it felt very specifically the Dirty Dozen, though. Right? Yeah. Um, where you have the uh, Pedro Pascal is the, the Lee Marvin character who has to go find a prisoner to infiltrate this impossible Nazi fortress. And uh, Bill Burr's character Mayfeld really feels like a mix between John Cassavetti's Victor Franco and Charles Bronson's character. And if you remember in dirty dozen Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson make the approach to the front, to the, the Nazi Chateau together in Nazi uniforms. And the whole thing is that Charles Bronson can speak German and Lee Marvin can't. And so that's really what Mayfeld is, is acting as here instead of German, it's just Imperial protocols. He's speaking. And, uh, I thought it was really, really fun. Those, those, uh, connections to that but also really interesting how many more connections they draw to the empire and nazis yeah well mayfield and mando they kind of like mayfield's like egging mando on here he he removes his helmet he says it's uncomfortable he doesn't know how mando you know wears his all day uh they drive past a bunch of juggernauts that have been like turned into bits which kind of uh, scares mayfield um they drive through this little village past some locals, including kids. You know, it seems like these innocent people that are in the middle of this war. I guess this is putting like a face to the oppressed by these imperial holdovers here. And um, here's where it gets interesting. So Mayfield argues that some people rule and other people like being ruled. Like uh, that that's his philosophy. He's telling like, telling it how it is. And... Mayfield makes a comment about how Mandalore is like Alderaan, neither of which exist anymore. Is he talking about physically or metaphorically? What is he what is he saying here, Brian? Um, so we know that Alderaan's been destroyed, but the implication that we've gotten from Alderaan in previous uh episodes, like uh Bo-Katan said, um, that that the idea is that somehow it was like irradiated and that no one can go there and um Din Jaren says that it's a dead world. No one can go there. And Bo-Katan is like, we think that's just propaganda sort of. So, so I think it's much more in line with Geonosis and what happened with Geonosis. Um, if you remember from star Wars rebels that, that the empire committed genocide there to help keep the death star project secret. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So here's some of the most interesting stuff here. Mayfield says, uh, you said you couldn't take off your, your helmet off. And now you got a stormtrooper one on. So what's the rule? 
is it that you can't take off, off your Mando helmet or you can't show your face? Because there is a difference. And it's interesting. He says everyone has their lines they won't cross until things get messy. Brad, what, what do you think here? What, 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 what is going – like what is the rule? And is he, is he, is he crossing the line to, you know, get Grogu? I mean, yeah, it would, it would seem so, you know, because it's, it's the, the whole thing about the Mandalorian is like their armor is sacred to them and the arm, their armor is theirs. And so it's almost like he's disgracing himself and Mandalorians in a way to wear anything other than the armor that he's meant to wear to keep his face hidden. But, you know, there's, there's layers here. There's the idea of like, you know, if it's if the rule is that he can't show his face, or if he has to wear the Mando Mando helmet, you know, if it's um, that he can't show his face, then that's a little more interesting because then it it almost deems the the activities of the Mandalorians to be something that they don't want other people to be aware, you know, who is doing it and who is you know pulling off these whether they're bounties or uh, you know whatever jobs they're be they're being asked to to pull off. Um, there's there's this interesting idea of you know, whether or not you, the things you're doing, you're willing to, you know, associate yourself with. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting question that he poses. And I think it's, it ties into the larger, you know, perspective he has too, when they, when they go through uh, that, that village and he says, he's like new Republic empire, like it's all the same to these people, you know, like it's just somebody else to, to, to rule them and see over them. And all they see is just, you know, a governing party that's giving them guidelines to live by. And that ties into the, you know, that interesting moment that Brian alluded to earlier with the TIE fighters coming in and you essentially cheering for them when they're the bad guys. Um, and it's, yeah. it's really creating this this interesting uh, dynamic between the good guys and the bad guys. And part of me wonders if this is actually a way of them starting to lean into the idea of how the New Republic failed and allowed the First Order to rise in the sequel trilogy. Because obviously this takes place between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. And by the time Force Awakens comes around... The First Order is a, a dominant, you know, um, regime to be reckoned with. And so maybe the New Republic isn't quite, uh, you know, this savior as we thought they would be. Um, maybe there's there's a lesson to be learned of, like, trusting too much in w- the people who seem to be heroes. and Or, or maybe, like, the, the these heroes not following through on the things that they, you know, thought they could or, or would do. It's um, It's an interesting dynamic that's at play. I definitely yeah, think I, we're going to get into that like considerably. What were you going to say, Brian? Well, well, I was going to say though, like I, I wonder how much of that is actually going to be at play because we know from other parts of the canon, especially um, Claudia Gray's Bloodline, which was a story that was ripped out of Ryan Johnson's notes as he was developing the Last Jedi. The First Order is a secret. Like that no one really believes exists in the galaxy as as few as just a few years before Force Awakens. Um, So that I think that what we're seeing more like is that the Republic is so overly focused on um, sorting house in the core worlds that these fringe worlds that nobody even really knows about uh, just sort of get really left behind, which is. Ultimately, the problem with the Republic in the in the first place, when you when you look at Phantom Menace and and Shmi talking straight up about how like the Republic doesn't exist out here, and I think that's an interesting thing they're going to be exploring in the High Republic era as well, um, where they're just uh, if you read the excerpts, they've got the first eight chapters of Light of the Jedi um, 
uh, available online to read, and it comes out next month. And it really talks about the Republic's first big push to bring the Outer Rim into the Republic. And that was 200 years before Phantom Menace. And something has to go wrong there if the Republic simply doesn't exist out there. And uh, so I think I think there's definitely some interesting stuff going on along those lines, whether it's the First Order or whether it's just the inability of the government to look after everybody. Um, it's definitely a problem. Yeah. I do think that some of the most interesting parts of this episode are the philosophy, like the the the, the questions and the ideas that uh, are relayed here. Um, uh, let's get back to the, the the actual action. They hear some weird chatter over the radio. Two juggernauts are destroyed and blow up ahead of them. Uh, a speeder or skiff, whatever you want to call it, with pirates pulls up alongside their vehicle. And Mando's able to defend, but then there's a couple more speeders that arrive with more pirates. Um, who are we to believe that these pirates are? Because they're blowing up these vehicles. They don't want the Imperials to get this, this, uh, what is it? Rodan- uh, Rhydonium. Rhydonium. Yeah, no, these are, these are the locals. These are the locals that are fighting back against the tyranny of the Empire. These are... This is, of, I think, part of the reason that they draw the visual parallels to Rogue One is that we're on the other side. We're with Cassian and Jin and uh, Saw Gerrera's partisans on Jeddah when we're seeing these guerrillas do exactly the same thing to the Empire and we're cheering for them to take the Empire down in Rogue One. And here, just because it's antithetical to the beliefs and, and the goals of our heroes, we're rooting against these people. And I think it really plays an interesting magic trick on us as the audience to force us to root for people or root against people that we should be rooting for. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of presented from our point of view as the audience, as pirates, like evil pirates that are coming there to steal stuff. But they're really just there to stop the Imperials from getting this thing. Um, like you said, they're, they're I guess they are the good guys. But from our point of view, they don't look like it. Um does I mean it seems like Mando's taking them out with his blaster and stuff? Like, is there any care here? Like, I, I mean, I guess he's playing a role, right? He's playing a role of one of the troopers on this transport. So, but he's also killing innocent people. Like, should we care about that? Well, you know, everybody has a line and it gets muddy when when you decide where it is to cross, which is part of the whole theme of the episode, which is why I uh, I think I like this a little bit more than Brad in that it asks those really hard questions and forces us to actually ponder them. Well, that's actually that's actually what I do like about the episode, but it's the overall, I guess, production quality of it is what I and also the lack of, I guess, I don't know, story progression before I before a season finale felt felt a little, I don't know, um, cheap, cheap to me in a way. But I do like the. Um, the thematic elements that are at play because of that, that, that conversation. Yeah. So Mando's blaster stops working for him, forcing him after resort to hand to hand combat, uh, unable to move any faster or risk blowing up. Mando is um, forced to encounter a handful of more pirates. One of them sticks a thermal detonator onto the, the ship. Mando is being held while, while Mando is being held down. Mando is able to, throw the detonator back at the pirate speeders before it blows. Um, so then 
there's a bunch of stuff that happens here. I'm not sure how much of it is interesting to recap here, but the, the pirates are on their tail and it seems completely overwhelming. And this is that moment that you talked about where the TIE fighters arrived to kind of save them, clear out the pirates, allowing the juggernaut to get to the facility. And it's like that big moment where we're supposed to cheer, but we're cheering for the bad guys. Um, and uh, I think Burr's character says, never thought I'd be happy to see stormtroopers. That's when we see a bunch of stormtroopers. We see some shore troopers. Um, and we're inside the facility now. And they're met by all these these troopers who are celebrating. Um, Mando and Mayfield find the terminal. It's in the officer mess hall. Uh, Mayfield was is going to go to it, but he spots a character named Valen Hess. Uh, someone he served under and might be able to ID him. Actually, he might have already spotted him. So Mayfield wants out. Mando offers to do it himself and asks for the data stick. But uh, basically, Mando is going to have to scan his face to access the terminal. Something, you know, it, if we said earlier that, like, maybe it isn't that he has to wear the Mando armor all the, the time on his head. Maybe it's that he can't show his face. Now he's going to actually have to show his face. And not only is he going to have to show his face uh, to some bad people, but it's going to be scanned. I'm guessing it's going to be in some kind of data somewhere in this uh, Imperial network for a long time. So that's that's bad. Um, Mando still goes for it. Uh, I guess he's crossing this line to save Grogu. And I, I think he probably thinks this is worth it. And I, I agree. Uh, Mando reluctantly removes his mask, takes the scan to access the terminal. Um, dude, do you, th- by the way, we should ask, do you think the Imperials will have a scan of his face? I mean, does it even matter because Moff Gideon knows his name, knows who he is? Like, does it do yeah, anything? I don't, I don't think this necessarily matters. I think that, um, the story point that's most important is that Din is willing to break his code to keep his code, if that makes sense. To save Grogu, that's more important than him keeping his face hidden but i also will and i think that's sorry brian go ahead and finish oh oh i was gonna say so i i I think that you're right in that moff gideon already knows who he is it doesn't matter what his face looks like isn't that also kind of weird though that like it has to scan your face to do this information but it makes no like recognition of the fact that oh this isn't somebody who should be getting this information we'll just give it to him anyway like I, it seemed weird to me that this was something that they could so easily a- access from an imperial computer mainframe, and even with you know, even if by bringing somebody like Mayfield along, you would think as after with him not being part of the you know imperial ranks anymore, that his access and and like you know ability to to get a hold of these things wouldn't be available anymore. It's you know it's essentially like letting somebody keep a key card to the CIA after they've been found out to commit espionage. Yeah, it doesn't quite add up, does it? Like, I mean, I could maybe theorize that they got a Imperial data key, like Cardoon had access. I mean, it doesn't really seem like she's like that in well, with the New Republic, but maybe she had access to get a recent data key that would allow them in. But what does the scan of the face do? Like that—that that doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, the way they explain it in the episode is just that, like, it's scanning to make sure that you're not a New Republic agent. And that literally anyone else in the galaxy is okay to access any of this top secret information. Um, Oh, Star Wars. Never change. It's just, 
it's one of those Star Wars things that it's just like if you if you if you buy the premise, you just have to buy the bit. Um, but I really I really did like Boba's comment about it, where they're like, "Well, why don't you go in, Boba?" And he's like, "I think they'd recognize my yeah, face let, or whatever yeah, it is." Let, he let's said. Ju- let's just say that they'll recognize my face. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was that was really fun. Um, but it, it's, I mean, it's the same reason why no one bats an eyelash in Casablanca over why Charles de Gaulle's signature means anything on the exit visas, right? Like, why would the Nazis care about Charles de Gaulle signing an exit visa? That's, uh, that's fair. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so Hess approaches and asks for his designation. Mando kind of like, I don't know, all of a sudden doesn't know what to say, is really bad at like responding I, I i don't buy that either like i feel like mando is much more like able to deal with I, those kind of situations but i it think like the plot is I more th- needs him to be like flustered than no i i feel like i think you're right if he's wearing the helmet but without the helmet he's totally lost and he has all like he's taken off all of his armor in general, and now he's taken off even the replacement armor, and so he's just this exposed nerve that doesn't know how to function. Yeah, that's a good point. He doesn't even have his helmet on, or he doesn't even have a helmet on. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so Mando's on the spot, and thankfully Mayfield comes over and offers some bogus information, and it turns out Hess doesn't recognize him. Um, I do want to say that uh, Richard Brake who is the guy that plays Hess here is really great as an Imperial officer. I really like the, he, he was the night King in game of Thrones. Oh, was he? I did not. Yeah. Know that. That's uh, why you got me he, here. Yeah. <laughs> Mayfield claims uh, that quote unquote, brown eyes lost his hearing in Tanab or. Yeah. Well, he's, he, he, yeah. Says, he, he pronounces it. Yeah, weird. He says Tanab. Tanab. Yeah. What is Tanab? Says, I think it's Tanab. So it just said uh, weird, isn't it? Yeah. And <laughs> Tanab is, yeah, like we're familiar with that as the place where, where Lando made his bones enough in that little maneuver to become a general in the new the alliance to restore the Republic. Okay. Um, I, love the, I, I, if, I love the brown eyes reference too because it's sort of a mix between Blondie and Angel Eyes from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very Western-ish. Uh, Mayfield and Mando attempt to leave, but Hess says that they are not dismissed. You know, it gives a little tension to the scene. Um, Hess recognizes them as the only transport team that was able to deliver the shipment. And he offers them buy, buy them a drink. Uh, so the, we now see them at a table. Uh, cheers to Operation Cinder. Uh, that's something we recognize, right? Yeah, Operation Cinder was, uh, again, drawing in the Nazi comparisons. I mean, aside from the fact that Hess is the is the Imperial officer and Hess was uh, Hitler's uh, deputy Fuhrer until 1941. Um, uh, you've got Operation Cinder, which is sort of the Star Wars equivalent of Hitler's Nero decree. And that was when Hitler said that, like, fine, if I'm going, we're taking everything with it. And they just started torching stuff. And that's what Palpatine had put in place. And so it destroyed a whole or tried to destroy a whole bunch of worlds over Naboo. Um, 
Princess Leia and the Queen of Naboo fought to prevent that genocide from happening there. Um, it happened over uh, Iden Versio's planet, Iden Versio in uh, in Twilight uh, Battlefront Two, Twilight Company. They participated on that planet, and and we've heard about it in other places. Um, here, though, uh, Hess and Mayfeld were involved in a place called Burn and Con, which is really interesting. Again, another video game connection. And we talked about this video game. It was Star Wars Uprising. Um, we talked about it a little last week. And the iron blockade around the Anoat sector and Bespin and Cloud City and all that stuff. Um, Burn and Con was one of the world's under that blockade and the operation cinder story played out in that game that, that lasted for less than a year. Actually, it went from 2015 to 2016 and they sort of uh, brought all that stuff back in from that video game. No one's played because it's been just <laughs> defunct for so long. Yeah. So Mayfield says that he lived it. He lost his whole division that day. He's not happy about it. And the officer seems to have no remorse for this. You know, it, this whole scene kind of feels like um, like a scene in the Tarantino movie. Like, two- Oh yeah. This is, this is inglorious bastards. Like, uh, like it's definitely that the fast bender scene in the tavern. And uh, so Hess says that the new Republic is in complete disarray, that the recent deliveries, they can create havoc and they're going to make, Burning Con just pale by comparison. What is Burning Con? Because that's mentioned a couple of times here. So, so that's that planet where Operation Cinder happened yeah. in that in that uprising game. And so it was just, I mean, Operation Cinder was just like, let's kill everybody, let's destroy any sign of what was left. And it sounds like what happened was um, that he killed. And this happened at other places too. That even if there were Imperials stationed on the planet, they were just like destroying and leveling cities and things like that. And uh, it was just bad news. It was, you know, imagine if the Nazis had firebombed Dresden themselves. Yeah. And also, I think all this is setting up like, (laughs) it feels like it's setting up like a, a novel of like Bill Burr's like uh, Mayfield's past, right? Like, it seems like there's, enough material there to get his like backstory but um okay so Hess then kind of gives his view of things we we heard Mayfield's view of things earlier Hess says that everyone thinks they want freedom but what they really want is order and that when the galaxy realizes that they'll welcome them back with open arms um it's interesting here because there's um I don't want to say that that's similar to what Mayfield says, but it is similar enough. And I think him seeing that come out of the guy that he just totally is disgusted by, I think is like the last straw. I don't know. Maybe that that is enough to get him to pick the other side. Uh, there's also like I this. Think... Uh, what were you going to say? I was going to say, I think there's an element too where it's like, Mayfeld left the Imperial remnant not to make a fortune or he didn't stick with the Imperials, right? Because Burn and Khan, you watch your commanding officer kill five to 10,000 of your fellow, you know, stormtroopers in your division. You're probably going to get a lot of uh, people who are very dissuaded 
into carrying on. So the people who are still in the empire at this point are really the true believers. And the fact that Mayfeld had left at this point and this man was responsible for so many of his friends dying felt like that was as much his turning point as having some of his own words thrown back in his face too. Yeah. And also I I forgot to mention when they were trying to escape, they mentioned that they had to go file some TPS reports, which I think is a reference to office space. It's not a Star Wars reference. That's for damn sure. How do you guys think that ended up in the episode? I actually think that maybe it's a an, an improvised line by Bill Burr. It's it's it kind of sounded like that. No, yeah, yeah, that that's very possible. And they're like, yeah, that's funny. Um, okay, so Mayfield at this point shoots Hess and then takes out the storm the troopers in the room watching, and he quickly explains, you know, he didn't do it. Uh, because he hates them. He, he had to. They, they all saw Mando's face. Uh, so Mando puts back in his helmet. Uh, by the way, it, it's very interesting to see in this whole sequence Mando being vulnerable without his, his Mando helmet on, um, being put in that situation. I think th- that whole setup is like very well written. Okay, we had to change our recording settings. I know I will probably sound worse. I apologize, but I am in a weird location without a proper microphone. So we got to make do with what we have. But let's let's get back into it. Slave one lowers, so they jump onto it and take off. As they fly away, Mayfield shoots and takes out the trucks with the weapons. Uh, he says that this will allow him to sleep at night. Um, some TIE fighters are now in pursuit but Boba Fett drops a seismic charge and takes them out in a badass fashion. Um, I used to love, by the way, I used to play this game called the X-Wings miniature game. And when I was Boba Fett, I used to love using those seismic charges because like you just like drop the bomb and hope that the, you know, the X-Wing or the yeah X-Wings or TIE fighters would like fly into it. So you could like set it off. It's like one of the most badass weapons. I just love the sound it makes. It's such a cool sound. Yeah. Um, okay, so Man- Mando thinks Mayfield or <laughs> Mando thanks Mayfield for helping. Uh, Burst renders himself to Dune, who seems impressed with what he did at the end there. And Kara remarks that it was too bad Mayfield died back there. And uh, Burr has like really this funny line where he's like, "Does this mean I can go? Because I will." And uh, Mando nods I loved, his head. Say? I, lo- I loved that moment where for just a second he worries that this is where they're going to just kill him. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he's fully expected, expecting to be shot in the back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a really funny moment overall. Uh, they now have the quarter-inch from Moff Gideon. Dune asks what the next move is. And then we cut to Moff Gideon, who's told he needs to see something. It's a transmission from Mando saying he has something he wants and threatened threatened so that uh, that soon the child will be back with him and that he means more to him than you'll ever know, which is actually a callback to what Gideon said in the first season. Um, can we all agree that this is very cheesy? I mean, cheesy, but also I I really liked it. You know, it's, it's a, an old school, like, you know, threat from the hero to the villain, like yeah, he's coming. And I love that he turns Gideon's words around on him. But I also love that the words that he's using also give layers to Mando because they they mean a different thing coming from Mando. The reason, you know, Grogu means so much to Gideon is because 
it it's important to what he's trying to achieve. But the reason Grogu means so much to Mando is because he's taking him on like he's a kid of his own. And I think that it's very cool that this comes in an episode where both, uh, I think, I think Cara Dune and then also um, Mayfield refer to Grogu, not as the child or the kid, but as his kid as referring to Mando. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think I think this is a way cooler message than say like sending him a bulletproof vest with a fish in it. Um, <laughs> you know, like or cutting I, off the head, uh, the head of a farthier and putting it in his bed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I think I think turning his words around on him was super cool, and I I, I got the hint of like actual like frustration out of Gideon which is the first time I think I've seen anything even remotely resembling that on him I don't know I guess cheese is just part of what I love about Star Wars and I'd like some wine with that I I think one of the things that Brad said earlier that was kind of missing from this episode is it doesn't really have any like um thing that kind of furthers along like there's no big reveals there's no big like um i feel like i was waiting for this ending to have more than just this cheesy line if that makes sense yeah like this like usually the like penultimate episodes of seasons it it sets up something big to be resolved in the the final episode and sure there is something big left to be resolved but it's nothing that wasn't set up in the episode before it. There's no, there's no new big push to like raise the stakes even, even higher. And I think that's what was missing from this episode. Well, but I think, I think the thing that we're supposed to take from this episode is the lengths that, that Din is willing to go to get Grogu back. Right. Like him taking off his helmet is such a huge step in his character. And we couldn't have got there before then. And I think that the threat against Gideon is way more impactful knowing that that he's willing to go to those lengths that that this is going to be the big fight i don't know maybe i'm just really i really <laughs> like filling in those blanks but this promised like a really cool finale to me yeah i i like this episode didn't love it um i would say maybe this is my least favorite episode of the season not to say it's bad i think it's probably better than most of the season one um, we have been talking about some of the behind the scenes crew in previous episodes. So I wanted to point out some people here. Uh, Matthew Jensen is the director of photography on this one. And he did wonder woman. I think he kind of went up with, um, Josh Trank. He did Chronicle and he did fantastic four. And he's also recently done a lot of like episodes of television. He did like 11 episodes of Ray Donovan. So he was director of photography. And again, Sam Hargrove, Hargrave, uh, was the uh, second unit director. So some of the action there is directed by him. Uh, any last thoughts on this episode? Or actually, you know, let's get back to the, the thing that I was going to ask. The title of this chapter is The Believer. Who is The Believer? I think I think there's a couple of different people that it could refer to. I think it could refer ironically to Din as The Believer, um, but also to Hess which is really, I think, an interesting choice that Hess is the true believer of the Empire. And uh, um, it makes it really, really interesting that he would get the title. Hmm. See, I was almost going to suggest that it could be Mayfield um, because it seems like his beliefs kind of change 
Uh, Brad, do you have any th- thoughts on The Believer? No, that's kind of... Uh, Brian pretty much said what I, what I had thought, too. Yeah. Um, so this season, every episode this season has begun with The. Um, every episode but two last season began with The. Uh, what are the chances that the final episode that comes out next week is going to begin with The? Pretty good. Pre- pretty good? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, odds are right. So, do do we want to put like guesses? What what do you guys think? Like, if you had to guess what the finale is going to be called, because we we like to speculate here. What are your guesses? Had we not already gotten an episode called The Jedi, I would yeah. have guessed The Jedi. Um, but I mean, it could be something really banal, just like the finale. Uh, or confrontation or the return yeah Mm. okay um let's talk before we get to some emails that we got in let's talk about this disney investors presentation that they had just yesterday it had some big i mean huge reveals if you have not read any of like what was announced at this uh, conference. If you go to slashfilm.com. There's a lot of ton. There, I think we did like 30 articles yesterday. Yeah, over 30 articles. Please read because it was all hands on deck. We spent four hours on this phone, uh, well, this live stream event, uh, pouring over everything, getting it out there as fast as we could because this stuff came rapid fire so fast, full of information details. We're, we're talking stuff that was like this was built up from probably from Comic Con, New York Comic Con, Star Wars Celebration. Um, that this is all stuff that they've been waiting to reveal, and they just dumped it all on us. So amongst that, we learned that Star Wars is going to have 10 Disney Plus series over the next few years, and and part of that is a couple series that are going to spin off from The Mandalorian, which we kind of suspected. Uh, Brad, tell us about them. Yeah, so uh, the two series they announced are Ahsoka, which is a series that will obviously focus on Ahsoka Tano, uh, the Rosario Dawson live-action version, and also Rangers of the New Republic, uh, which is something that we hadn't really anticipated, though it may have possibly been guessed at, because I do wonder if this has something to do with Cara Dune uh, being recently named a Marshal of the New Republic and might be a spinoff for her and some other new characters to follow. And uh, both of these shows... Was, oh, go sorry, go ahead, Brian. I, I was I was thinking Carson Teva, right? Like, the the new republic pilot who's been hanging around this season like cruising the galaxy like that chips show right yeah yeah it's 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 certainly possible um i I see definitely see it being like like that or maybe like the star wars version of law and order or something like that um but yeah so both of these shows are being developed by john favreau and dave filoni they take place in the same timeline as the mandalorian and they will be interconnected with the continuing adventures of the mandalorian as well do we know were you excited, uh, they said they they said that it was also going to lead up to an event, right? Uh, I didn't didn't hear that, but maybe it just got lost in the shuffle of everything that was going on. Huh. Yeah, I think I think that's what they I think that's what they said. Do do we know any of the other creatives involved here? Like, do we know who's going to be the showrunner for Ahsoka or the new no, public? All they did was announce the titles and say that they were being developed by uh, Favreau and Filoni. I think one other really interesting note, though, is that it, Mandalorian stuff is filtering elsewhere. They did show a trailer for the Bad Batch, which they'd announced previously, and we're going to get the Bad Batch next 
year and it it's about uh, a group of clones after order 66 which is essentially like clone wars season eight um but fennec shand ming na wen's character from the mandalorian appears in that in that footage so um they're definitely seeding a lot of these characters into other places as well um we we do have a couple email or let's just read one of these emails because we're running low on time uh Cade writes in with a prediction um or actually not in prediction a, a i guess a dream ending for the series he says uh mandalore has often been considered an analog for sparta in the star wars universe right so the perfect ending for mandalorian would to lean would be to lean right into that most important legend slash historical events in greek history the battle of Thermopylae, uh, a dying Bo-Katan hands the dark saber to Mando, making him the de facto leader to the Mandalorian remnant. The mystery of the experiments on Rogu lead Mando and his crew to Exegol, the heart of the cloning plot lines and a site of newly formed Sith army. Mando musters the remaining Mandalorians to make one last stand against the first wave of the Sith troopers Rising on Exegol, 300 Mandalorian faced 1 million Sith troopers, and the ending would be familiar. What do you guys think of that theory as the ending of the Mandalorian? Uh, I don't think we're going to get that far down the timeline. <laughs> and and Filoni and George Lucas, in, I mean, like interviews I've done with Filoni, Filoni has likened Mandalore more toward Germany. Right. Like, especially in the Clone Wars era, it's very much like the pre um, like the government post the armistice. Right. Like after World War One yeah. is they're waiting for for Hitler, that their Hitler equivalent to sort of come to power. And so I think um, that's sort of a more uh, um, that's more of a place to look than Sparta. Um, I don't so think anybody we, who's working on the new canon is looking at Sparta and Mandalore as similar. If you had to um, predict, like, I don't even think John Favreau and Dave Filoni have like an ending to the series. But if you had to predict where this is going to end up in the very end, I'm not talking about next episode. I'm talking about like the end of the series. Like, where do you think it's going to end? So, by the way, just to confirm, Brian is right. Because I went and looked at the like official post that Star Wars put up for, that rounded up all of the new Star Wars announcements, and it says uh, that it will culminate into a climactic story event. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Uh, so the theories on the end of the series. Where, where's it headed? Mandalore. <laughs> so a big battle. No, I mean like for Mandalore. I, I think that that what this is going to do is reestablish the Mandalorians as a people uh, under one, like they're going to unite all of the different flavors of Mandalorian and bring them out of hiding and back into a culture that they can create and work on the galactic scale with. Um, I think that's where it's heading. I think you don't introduce the Darksaber without addressing uh, Mandalorian leadership and who's going to be in charge of that. Uh, you don't introduce the Night of a Thousand Tears and how, how uh, this purge sort of removed everyone from Mandalore and so few are left without um, addressing that. And so I think that's what everything's building toward is them sort of getting back at the Imperials that harmed them, who committed that genocide, and um, 
you know, reestablishing their home. I don't know how you get everybody on the same page in terms of like, you know, what it means to be a Mandalorian though at this point. It seems like there's so many different thoughts but and ideals you, and codes. But that's how you get everybody on the same page is by saying like, hey, we're not all on the same page, but we are Mandalorians. And if our way of life is going to survive, even in any of these different flavors, we need to come together. And there's so few of us we need to to acknowledge that we have dif these differences well speaking of the the ultimate end to i, I want to bring this up this was not an email but this was something that was tweeted to us by somebody who listens to the podcast um after uh the jedi episode um they said that they felt that it was kind of sad since we already see what happens with episodes seven through nine that the ending for grogu has to be bleak um and that and he just wonders if the show would have been better if it was set after episode nine instead. Um, and but I, I, does I have to be bleak? Do, do, can we answer that question? Because, I mean, theoretically, why? Because there's this claim that, that, wait, yeah, why does it have to be bleak? Well, because every time, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, because, I mean, I'm assuming he thinks it's bleak because Grogu isn't around during those episodes and you would, some people are probably thinking if he were still alive that he might be around for what's happening. And some people are also probably thinking about the fact that you hear Ahsoka's voice uh, in the uh, among all the Jedi that Ray hears at the end, even though Filoni himself has said that that doesn't necessarily indicate that she is dead. But personally, I, I don't think it's necessarily bleak because based on what we know about his history, because he's been in hiding since Attack of the Clones, you know, so... Uh, there's all this stuff has been happening and he's been in hiding this whole time and he hasn't been involved in it. So it would stand to reason that he could still easily be in hiding somewhere during the events of the new trilogy and not necessarily directly involved with the battle, especially since he's 50 years old right now and he's still a toddler. And so give another, you know, 30 years roughly, and he's not going to be that much more developed to be, you know, willingly or having people pushing him to, you know, take up this fight against the first order. Um, so, well, uh, I've got like three things to, to piggyback off on that, but I do want to push back a little bit. Yoda was training Jedi of his own by the time he was 100. So 30 years seems like he'd at least be a Jedi Knight at that point, if that's the path he took. Um, but I, I, I really don't want people to feel like they can guess what the ending has to be. Because Filoni has taken every everything that somebody says, oh, this has to be awful, and used it against us. I don't think people remember, like, we, we take it for granted now that Ahsoka made it through the Clone Wars. But when that show was coming out, we all said that same thing. Oh, this has got to end bleak. Like, there's no mention of her in Revenge of the Sith. There's no way she's going to survive this. And Filoni and, and George Lucas, to their credit, really played with our expectations and made us think every time Ahsoka was in danger, especially in the later seasons, this could be it. This could be the time where she loses her life. And they just, they used it against us in the best ways. They well, said the same thing about... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, didn't recently, or I'm not sure if this was a known thing, but Dave Filoni, I know, had an interview recently where he was talking about how George Lucas wanted to kill Ahsoka, where, like, that's where they actually had a disagreement. Um, and I feel like Filoni, like, the same thing happened with Rebels that you're talking about, Brian. Like, you know, everybody was like, oh, we have those yeah. lines in Empire, and, you know, that 
about the Jedi. So like Kanan can't be around. Ezra can't be around. Ahsoka can't be around. And uh, Filoni is notorious for not wanting to kill his his darling. Yeah. No, <laughs> Filoni also. Fil- Filoni, I remember at that. Uh, I don't know if you were there, Peter, um, the Rebels finale screening. And Filoni sort of responded to the fact that everybody, I think, was geared up for that horrible ending and it ended on such a powerful positive note and Filoni said at the end of the day this is Star Wars and Star Wars is hopeful and you know they'll end they'll end the middle parts of the stories in those horrible places but the the ultimate story is how people overcome and so I I really don't think the ending of this is going to be bleak Um, even Revenge of the Sith which is arguably the most bleak place to end a thing um still carries on with the original trilogy and reverses that into hope. And so I think ultimately the story of the Mandalorian is going to be one that, that is uplifting because that's the nature of star Wars. It is interesting to think that 50 years into his lifetime, Grogu is still acting like an infant, but in another 50 years, he'll be of the age that could be training Jedi or maybe, like, is it possible that he's, because he hasn't, like, had a father figure around, that maybe he's, like, not as far along in his maturity that he should know now? I was thinking about that, too, that maybe, like, he's got some developmental um, delay because of whatever muddled his mind in that amnesia or whatever it is that he's dealing with. But he's clearly got more um, knowledge and understanding and... Um, wherewithal than we would have guessed based on that conversation he was able to have in his mind with Ahsoka. Okay. One last question for you guys. Next week is the finale of season two. What do we think is going to happen? Obviously, this is a... Is everybody coming together? This is the A-team going after Gideon to rescue Grogu. And I think we all expect them to succeed in that but maybe that is where we're wrong maybe that's the surprise that they actually won't you know that the season will end with Grogu still being in the hands of Moff Gideon what do you guys think it's possible I also wonder if there's a chance that like Grogu ends up with the whoever the Jedi is who potentially answers his call and maybe Mando doesn't get a chance to like stop him from or or her whoever it is from doing that in order to save Grogu himself and like explain himself as to why he's after them and the Jedi just assumes that you know Mando is just a bounty hunter out for you know his his own gain and then they have to chase down whoever this is and track track that person down um but I I feel like yeah I mean it really all hinges on exactly how how long they want to play this tension out of uh Grogu not being in the hands of the Mandalorian I I think we're going to get a lightsaber battle also. I think we're going to get some sort of lightsaber duel. Um, and that's purely well, we based on Giancarlo Esposito. Well, I think that's I think it's the Jedi who's going to show up to help Grogu. Um, it could be Ahsoka coming back. It could be a new Jedi. Um, my son is convinced that it's going to be Mace Windu. <laughs> um, and I don't know. Anakin is my son's name is Anakin. 
Um, Anakin is convinced of the weirdest theories that he comes up on, on himself. Like he was explaining to me yesterday that Grogu, Yoda, and Yaddle are actually just midi chlorians with gigantism. He tried to explain to me that the <laughs> the sequel trilogy, the sequel trilogy, was actually going to come down to Jabba the Hutt being the ultimate bad guy because he was still pissed off about the Road of the Hutt thing in the Clone Wars movie, um, and it Road of the Hutt was going to be the one behind everything. So he's just a weirdo. Um, but he, he's convinced it's Mace Windu who's, who's coming back. And I'm like, no, man, that's not going to happen, but he's convinced. And, uh, I don't know. I I think a Jedi is going to show up. Somebody's going to fight with him or it's going to be the Mando on the other side of that. Din Jaren's going to be using that Beskar spear to fight against the dark saber. Well, you never know, Brian, we learned that Hayden Christensen is going to reprise his role as Darth Vader. In the Obi-Wan. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I'm excited did. for that. I don't, I'm, I am not. <laughs> it's not like Sorry. he's going to be the voice. I know, but also, like, just the idea of having him in the body, it's like, who cares? I mean, like, they, in Ridge of the Sith, what, they had to put him on, like, stilt boots, and then he clumsily walked around, and uh, yeah. I just don't. So, I... the <laughs> thing that excites me about it is the same thing that excited me about the confrontation between Ahsoka and Anakin in... Twilight of the Apprentice, the season two finale of Star Wars Rebels, where you actually she actually cuts part of his mask open and you see the Anakin beneath and sort of hear some of that. And and I wonder if we might get some of that. There's no way they just bring him in to clomp around in just the suit. I, but I also I don't know, just the idea because Kathleen Kennedy even said that it's, you know, it'll be the rematch of the century kind of thing. And it's like uh, I. I feel like we're going to tread the same territory that we already did, though, by having Ahsoka battle Darth Vader or having Obi-Wan battle Darth Maul. You know, it's uh, it feels like the same thematic elements in a different package. And sure, that is, you know, to some extent, Star Wars M.O. You know, it, it's it's poetry. It all rhymes kind of thing. But I, I don't know. I just the idea of Hayden Christensen doesn't thrill me uh, um, as much as it seems to everybody else. Uh, and I just I, I don't know. I just I, I'll I'll reserve full judgment until we see Obi Wan. I'm sure I'll be suckered into loving it just as I have been with how all this Star Wars mythology stuff has been uh, made more interesting in season two of The Mandalorian. But I'm uh, very much uh, you know worried about how it's going to play out. I think the thing that gives me hope with that series is it's one season. It's a mini series. It is a movie, you know, over a one season period, and that gives me hope that they're not like just trying to build a series around because there's not much you can tell i think in that time period of that guy's life but i don't know maybe i could be wrong um but okay we're, we're getting far away from <laughs> the mandalorian uh I, th- I think we should end uh this episode right here i'll put a link in the show notes to brian's review on slashlum.com uh, if you want to find more of all of our work, you can go to slashfilm.com. If you want to find this podcast, you can find it on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please send us your feedback, theories, comments, concerns, questions to peter at slashfilm.com. Um, we're going to have an episode next week for the finale, and that will be our last episode of this season to discuss The Mandalorian. So uh, if, you, if you have anything, if you noticed anything from this episode that we missed, uh, please tell us and please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will see you on Monday. <laughs>